you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. The passage we're going to be looking at that will propel us forward in our worship this morning as God's people is 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, which is the final section of a passage that is all about the identity and purpose that we as believers find together in Christ Jesus. See, the book of 1 Peter is all about essential Christianity. Christianity 101, if you will. And the entire Christian life begins, as we saw in verse 3 of chapter 1, with something called the new birth. It's a divine miracle by which God Himself, by His grace, pushes sinners like you and I, who are dead in our trespasses and sins, into a new spiritual life by uniting us in faith to His Son, Jesus Christ. This is Christianity. It begins with a miracle called the new birth. And once we come to Jesus Christ by faith and are born again, we receive a brand new life, one that is full of identity, one that is full of purpose, both on our easy days as well as on our hard days. And the first two identities that we've looked at, the first two identities that are ours in Christ have been overwhelmingly positive on the surface. Haven't they? For example, in verses 4 through 5, we learned that in Christ we've been made living stones who are being built up into a spiritual house of worship for God. That's pretty positive, I'd say. Once we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were utterly cut off from the life of God in Christ, and we were outcasts of His saving kingdom. But now, having been brought into union and alignment with the King of the kingdom, Jesus Christ, we've been made alive, we've been united to the eternal life of God, and we've become citizens of His saving kingdom. And that is a wonderful, positive identity to hold. Peter says at the end of verse 5 that we become living stones in the, house of God, in the house of God in order to, he says here, offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That identity has a purpose. Quite simply, we were saved to serve. Serve both God and others. To be a living and active sacrifice in our worship of God and service of God's people. So that's what we learn in verses 4-5. through five. That there is a purpose to our joint progression in Christ, our spiritual growth. Peter then mentions another positive identity that is ours in Christ in verse 9, which we looked at last week. And that positive identity is this. We are a people possessed by God. We belong to Him now. He is the Father of our family. He's the God of our priesthood. He's the King of our kingdom. And And we are His children, His priests, and His subject. So that's another wonderful positive identity. Wouldn't you say? We've been brought near to God, into His kingdom, into His service, and into His family. And there's a purpose to that joint identity that we have as well. As Peter says at the end of verse 9, we become a people possessed by God. Why? So that we might proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. God brought us near. He brought us into His kingdom. He brought us into His service. He brought us into His very own family. Why? So that we might behold His glory firsthand and be able to then turn around and proclaim it to others. We've been saved to serve, and you could put it this way, we've been purchased to proclaim. Those are two wonderfully positive purposes. Two wonderfully positive purposes tied to our joint identity in Jesus. Now, if Peter was to stop there, Everything that he has said is 100% true and correct. 
we are Christians progressing in Christ, and there is a purpose to that progression. And we, as Christians, are possessed by Christ, and there's a purpose to our possession as well. That's 100% true. But if that's all that Peter said, it wouldn't be 100% complete, would it? I mean, let's be honest. Being identified with Jesus and with Jesus' people involves more than just positive experiences in worship or service and devotion to God, doesn't it? In fact, being identified with Christ and with His people often will mean rejection, ridicule, hardship, and negative experiences in this life. And so Peter here is not only 100% truthful in discussing our purpose as a people in Jesus, he's also 100% complete in discussing that topic as well. He shows us that faithfully identifying ourselves to Jesus will not only include positive experiences, but painful ones as well. But here's the wonderful news that we're going to see this morning. Even that, there's a purpose to even that identity as well. God has a purpose for everything in your life, believer. He has a purpose for the valleys as well as for the mountain peaks. And that's what Peter's going to show us this morning. We've seen the purpose of our joint progression in Christ and the purpose, and the purpose of our joint possession by Christ. Now let's consider this morning the purpose of our pilgrimage with Christ. For we have a purpose as a people in Christ Jesus. So with that in mind, let's read 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 11 through 12. And I'm going to back up for context again. Here we go. Verse 4. <laughs> Sorry. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and as exiles, to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and give glory and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the Word of God who is always near and whose commandments are always true. Let's pray. Father, we come before You as the sheep of your pasture. We long for you as our shepherd to lead us today by your rod and staff, 
guide us, Father, along right paths for Your namesake. Father, help us to understand truths about ourselves that we must cling to when we're by streams of living water or when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Father, as we are pilgrims on this pathway, keep us mindful of who we are and who You are that we might live lives for the glory of Christ and the salvation of the lost. Teach us this morning, Father, by Your Word, by Your Spirit, overcome weakness, overcome distraction and sin and unbelief. Glorify Yourself here today, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. So after Peter shows us that the purpose of our joint progression in and possession by Christ as elect exiles, he now proceeds to show us the purpose of our pilgrimage with Christ. That's in verses 11 through 12. Before we dive in, I just want you to notice first, so you can catch the flow of this passage and this letter, that these verses before us today contain the first explicit commands we have seen since the beginning of this chapter. Back in verse 1, we were told by God, if you look back there, to put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then in verse 2, we were told to long for the pure spiritual milk of God's Word. Those are commands. Those are things that we are told to do. But then immediately after that, Peter gives 11 whole verses that don't command anything of us. They simply tell us, this is who you are. No commands, simply statements of the truth concerning a believer's new joint identity and purpose in Jesus. Well, here in verses 11 through 12, though Peter still maintains his focus on a believer's joint identity and purpose, he now starts to transition here from simply declaring truths to finally urging for action. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep your conduct honorable. Those are commands, things we are to do. And their sudden appearance here after 11 whole verses of being completely absent is designed to get our attention. These are These are an important transition from doctrine to application. From what does an elect exile or a Christian, or what does an exile do compared to when we previously studied what an exile is? One always leads to the other. Because of who we are in Christ, then this is how we ought to live in the world. Right identity always leads to right living. And this is Peter's essential argument. This is how to live in this world as elect exiles. And we'll see it play out in astonishing detail as at our joint identity as a people. And then we're going to consider our joint identity, our joint purpose as a people. So first, let's consider this morning our joint identity in verse 11, the beginning of verse 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. And we'll pause right there for now. Peter begins by presenting our joint identity in Christ by saying right here at the beginning, Beloved, I urge you. Here Peter delivers to us a strong and a passionate plea. He throws his entire weight behind this. He says first, Beloved, 
right? Peter reminds us here that being in Christ, God loves us. He loves us. We saw this last week in verses 9 through 10. God has, through our regeneration and our new birth, brought us into his kingdom, into his service, into his very own family. He has made us a people by his own mercy. He has loved us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are the beloved of God. That knowledge that we are eternal objects of God's steadfast love should produce in us a powerful motivation to obey. Just as Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains us. He loves us. We are his beloved. And therefore, as the beloved of God, Peter urges us, he strongly pleads with us to do what he is about to say. Why? Because as we're about to see in verses 12 and 15 of this chapter, and in verses 15 through 16 of the next, and in so many other places in this letter, the glory of God among the nations depends upon whether we listen to the words of Peter this morning. Can I make it any weightier than that? The salvation of eternal souls depend on our observation of the verses that we are about to look at today. Evangelism, ladies and gentlemen, starts right here in our own hearts. And we'll see that in a second. So Peter says, beloved, I urge you. Pay attention. I urge you. And how does he urge us? He urges us as sojourners and exiles. That's our joint identity that he gives us here. And it flows right out of what we saw last week. We are a group of people that belongs to who? God meaning we do not belong to this world. We are sojourners and exiles, as Peter mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 1, verse 17. We are a pilgrim band, and we as Christians need to remember this. In Christ, we are spiritual migrants. We are passing through a foreign land, surrounded by a strange culture and strange customs. That is what our Christian life is. It's a pilgrim's journey, ladies and gentlemen. It's not a home renovation project. And we really, really, really need to understand this. Otherwise, we're going to have a really, really, really hard time obeying what Peter is about to say in the rest of this letter. As followers of Christ, we are sojourners and exiles. And as such, we will never really fit in here. And we never should really be comfortable. After all, Colossians 1.13 states, we have been delivered from the domain of darkness and we have been transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. In other words, in Christ our spiritual residency has changed. And now as Philippians 3 verse 20 says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, ever since the beginning of the creation of the priesthood back in Numbers 18, verse 20, and all the way through, repeatedly we see in Scripture that our portion as the people of God is not in this life. We see that in Joshua 18, 7, Psalm 16, verse 5, Psalm 73, verse 26, Psalms 142, verse 5, Jeremiah 10, verse 16. And as Hebrews 13, verse 14 puts it so simply, here we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. We're sojourners and exiles. And let me put that in a positive light for you for a moment. That means to come to Christ, as verse 4 calls us to do, is to every day go on a journey. 
It means to take adventures that await you in the love of God. Those adventures may be hard. They may be painful. There may be times when we will have to face grim foes and dark terrors, but that also means that as pilgrims, we will never have to face those adventures alone. For there is one who is with us in this pilgrim band, who travels with us on this pilgrimage, and he himself has said, never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. With him by our side, together as a people, we can say, to borrow C.S. Lewis's words, let us go on and take the adventure that awaits us. This is our joint identity in Jesus. We are pilgrims with Christ. We are sojourners and exiles. And this is when Peter's usual structure that he's been following shifts. Normally, he'd go right from our joint identity, and then he'd talk about a joint purpose, right? But he pauses that for a moment here, and he drops a direct application right in the middle of his argument as a sign of what's to come for the rest of this letter. Peter says, I urge you, as those who are beloved by God, as those who are naturally, supernaturally out of place in this world, I urge you, as elect exiles, born again by God's mercy and power, to do what? He says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. You see, as those who don't belong to this world, the world does not belong in us. We'll see this soon in this letter that the world with all of its sinful affections and worldly philosophies has absolutely no place in a, in a, for us in its corrupt world system. And likewise, we should have no place for their philosophies in ours. Peter urges us in the midst of our sojourning in exile, he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is how we are to live as pilgrims headed towards our heavenly king. Now that word abstain means to stay away from or to keep your distance from. And what are we supposed to keep our distance from? The passions of the flesh. You say, well, what are these passions of the flesh? They are the fallen desires of your sinful body. They are, you could put it this way, the strong cravings of your depraved nature. You see, even though we've been born again and made spiritually alive and given new hearts in Jesus Christ, none of us as believers have been given new bodies yet, have we? Nope. And we feel it every day. All right? We are still dwelling in a fallen, curse-ridden body of death which, in which dwells no good thing, as Paul says in Romans 7, verse 18. Only sin. And that's why, as Paul describes later on in Romans 7, we experience these intense spiritual battles every day between the flesh and the spirit. For though we have a new heart in Christ Jesus, we still have our old body in which sin dwells. And because of that, Peter urges us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. To be constantly holding ourselves back from those fleshly, passionate cravings which we are so prone towards. And that's not, by the way, just sexual immorality. That also includes what Peter mentioned back in verse 1. Malice, envy, jealousy, pride, selfish anger. Those are all strong passions of the flesh, are they not, when you experience them? And this command also includes what Paul mentions over in Galatians 5.19, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are all strong passions of the flesh. And we are to stay far, far, far away from them because we are pilgrims traveling farther and farther away from them in reality. Because if you're in Christ, they don't belong to you anymore and you don't belong to them. So abstain from the passions of your flesh. And he gives us the reason why. 
because they wage war against your soul. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, beloved. Sin committed by the body always defiles the soul. To give in to lusts and envious passions of the flesh always does grievous damage to the inner man. Always affects your relationship with God. It will leave a weakness. It will leave a scar upon the soul which only the persistent grace of God can heal. As Solomon said in Proverbs 6, verse 27, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? If you hold on to immorality, if you hold on to greed, if you hold on to anger and jealousy and bitterness, if you hold on to divisiveness or envy or anger, you will get burned spiritually. And so to follow Jesus as a pilgrim in this world means to wage war, ladies and gentlemen, against yourself. By their very nature, the passions of your sinful flesh wage a war against your new life in Christ, against the new identity and purpose that you found in Him. Therefore, in a very real sense, you are your own worst enemy. So let me make this intensely practical. Believer, your thoughts, your reactions, your impressions, and your emotions cannot be trusted. Follow your heart should be burned. For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. The passions of your flesh seek to destroy your soul. As Jesus says in Luke 8.14, they seek to choke it to death. You cannot rely on your own thoughts, your own reactions, your own impressions, or your own emotions. You say, well, if I can't trust my own thoughts, reactions, impressions, and emotions for doing what's right, then what can I trust in then as I walk in this world? Answer the word of God. Let your mind be transformed by the truth of God. That's what Peter said back in verse 2. Peter's going back to his original argument at the beginning of the chapter. The antidote to indulging in fleshly passions is to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word and of the gospel. It's to drive one desire out with another. It's to drive one thought out with another. To drive one wisdom out with another. This is what we are to do as strangers and as exiles. We are to abstain from the passions of the flesh by filling up on the word of God and the good news of Jesus Christ. As Psalms 119 verse 19 says, I am a sojourner on this earth. Oh God, hide not your commandments from me. We must battle the passions of the flesh with the power of God's word. We must have the Word of God be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path on our pilgrimage. For there are dangers and snares on every side. And those snares begin within us. Just as the Welsh hymn writer once penned, Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with your powerful hand. As pilgrims living in a foreign land, passing through this vanity fair, and we must trust what God says, not what our eyes see, nor our ears hear, nor our minds think. 
As Peter says later in chapter 4, verse 2, we must live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's our focus. So this is how we ought to live as elect exiles, as, as pilgrim brethren that are headed to glory. We must abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul. Peter then connects this need for internal purity with our external witness by saying next in verse 12, he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, the most effective way to start making an impact for Christ externally is by keeping yourself devoted to Christ internally. And we know this is true, do we not? Because we've seen the reverse play out far too often in the American church today. And I shudder as I say this, so many prominent leaders and teachers have scandalized the gospel of Jesus Christ and His bride because while they may have been doing countless ministries and activities on the outside, they were not abstaining from fleshly lusts on the inside. And so after a long chain of hidden sinful choices and allowances, they detonated their Christian witness in a minute. And by the way, entire churches can do this as well. Remember, Peter is describing our joint identity as strangers together and as exiles and as pilgrims together. And this makes this command a command to be obeyed together as a people. We as an entire church family must keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. How many unbelievers do you know that have a low view of Christ because they've seen members of churches forget about their corporate mission and witness Give in to selfish passions of the flesh. Ignore Scripture and create divisions among the body of Christ for their own selfish interests. How many unbelievers do you know that want nothing to do with Jesus because they think they've seen the life of Jesus? They've seen entire churches fracture over selfish passions. And they've seen churches detonate their Christian witnesses in an instant. Therefore, beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and as exiles, abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Beloved, we must keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. We must have a Christian love, care, and concern for each other. We must keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That is, we must keep our conduct and conversations gracious, God-honoring, and respectful. And we live in a world where those conversations are gone. We must conduct ourselves as followers of Jesus in such an honorable way that the new life and the new community that is offered in Jesus is seen as glorious and as blessed as it really is. So how do we do that? That's what the rest of this book is all about. We're to keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Just let me give you a sampling really quick. By being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. 
by verse 16, by living as servants of God, by verse 17, by honoring everyone, or by verse 17, by honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, fearing God, honoring the emperor, by verse 18, submitting to your masters and employers, by chapter 3, verse 1, by submitting to your husbands, by chapter 3, verse 7, by living with your wife in an understanding and respectful way, by chapter 3, verse 8, by having a unity of mind, a sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, and on and on and on it goes. This is how we are to adorn the gospel of our Savior. This is where evangelism starts. It starts by being submissive, respectful, loving, thoughtful, compassionate, and humble in all our relationships. The Romans' road is easy. Abstaining from the passions of your flesh takes divine power. I'll tell you which one God uses most often to bring a sinner to faith in Jesus Christ. We will either present obstacles to the truth of God's word or we will create avenues depending on how we live our lives. And it goes back to remembering who we are. So many Christians are detonating their Christian witness because they honestly believe their mission is a home renovation project when really their mission is as pilgrims and exiles to point lost sinners to Jesus Christ for their salvation. Who you are really, really, really matters. We must start conducting ourselves as pilgrims of the King with purity and honor. Why? Well, that brings us to our final point, our joint purpose as a people. We've seen our joint identity. We are pilgrims, beloved by God and yet being rejected by this world. And as pilgrims headed to our heavenly kingdom and king, we are to abstain individually and corporately from the passions of the flesh and keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? End of verse 12. Here's our joint purpose. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, which they will, it doesn't matter how you live, right? You can live the most winsome life as a follower of Christ possible. People will still try to discredit you. Why? We'll get to that in a moment. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So in other words, by living such a submissive, respectful, loving, thoughtful, compassionate, humble, and Christ-like life, you will turn the tables on unbelievers' arguments. See, in their effort to discredit the truth of the gospel and to escape from the conviction that the gospel brings, they'll attempt to discredit you. If the unsaved world can prove that you're a fake, then they can say that the gospel you believe is a fake also. They'll try to say that. And so the unsaved world will watch us like a hawk and will pounce on any chance to discredit the message that we declare by something that we do. In fact, the first century church, the church that Peter was writing to, this is exactly what was happening. Christians were being accused of nearly every type of evil. See, they were never persecuted for being Christians. They were always falsely persecuted for one of these reasons. They were accused of insurrection, Rebellion, cannibalism, atheism, incest, bigotry, intolerance, orgies, and so much more. The early Christians were slandered in nearly every way imaginable. And do you know what Peter's solution is to all of that? 
Don't let an ounce of it be true. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Live an absolutely excellent, God-fearing life. And how effective of a witness will that be? It says at the end of verse 12, it will be so effective that as they continue to see, present tense, your good works over a period of time, as they keep on observing your honorable, submissive, respectful, loving, thoughtful, compassionate, humble, and Christ-like life, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. You say, well, what is that day of visitation? Is that a good thing for the unbelievers that are watching us or a bad thing? Well, this phrase refers very basically to the day when God visits earth. If you look at the Old Testament, the day of visitation can mean either judgment or redemption. For example, in Isaiah 10, verse 3, the prophet says, what will you do on the day of visitation in the ruin that will come from afar? So that's clearly judgment. But being visited by God also means being blessed by God. In fact, it usually means that in the Old Testament. For example, in the story of Ruth or the story of Hannah or the psalmist's writings when they talk about God visiting them, God comes with blessings. So being visited by the Lord usually means being blessed in the Old Testament and specifically being blessed by the Lord's salvation and deliverance. That's how it's used multiple times throughout the prophets, especially in Jeremiah 27, 22, where it says this, Israel shall be carried away to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, when I shall bring them back and restore them to this place. So in the Old Testament, the day of visitation can mean judgment, usually means blessing by God, sometimes even with redemption and deliverance. But then in the New Testament, it becomes even clearer because every expression of being visited by God has to do with salvation in the New Testament. In Luke 1.68, Zechariah declares, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. Then a few chapters later, in chapter 7, verse 16, after Jesus displayed His saving power through the working of various miracles, the peoples declared, Truly God has visited His people. And then towards the end of the Gospel of Luke, just before he performs his saving work on the cross, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem and he says, you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. So the overall emphasis of Scripture indicates that this day of visitation likely alludes to a day of salvation. And that's why Peter says that these Gentiles will glorify God on the day of visitation. Why? Because they'll be saved. They'll be saved. Throughout the New Testament, whenever you, uh, New Testament epistles, whenever you see God being glorified, it nearly always is believers glorifying Him. One example is 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10, where it says, when Christ comes on that day, He will be glorified where? In His saints and marveled at by who? Among all those who have believed. Throughout the New Testament letters, those who glorify God are always believers. And I wanted to lay that foundation. Why? Because I want you to catch a vision of Peter's argument that he's going to follow through with the rest of this letter. And it is an absolutely thrilling vision. What Peter is saying is that when an unbeliever spends an extended period of time watching closely the character and conduct of genuine Christians, both individually and as a body, when an unbeliever watches for an extended period of time Christians, God uses our collective testimony together to bring that soul to Jesus Christ, to bring them to salvation and new birth so that they can stand ready to glorify God on the day of visitation. That's how powerful our testimony of our lives and conduct can be, both individually and as a church. It builds a bridge that encourages the gospel witness. And that's why it's so important to get to know your unsaved family members and friends and co-workers and neighbors believers and invite them to spend time with you and with other believers 
That's why it's so important for us as believers when we come across commandments to show hospitality. That's why we ought to invite them to church. It's because second to God's Word, the most powerful tool for evangelism God has given you and us as a church is the power of a pure and honorable life. A life that humbly serves God's people, speaks of God's glory, and surrenders to God's will. As Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this is the purpose of our joint pilgrimage in Jesus. And this is where all true evangelism begins. It begins in our relationship with God and in our relationship with each other. In order to win the lost for Christ, we must keep our daily conduct among them pure and honorable. And the only way we'll do that is if we keep our hearts close to Jesus, keep them pure and devoted and submissive to Him. We're in this together. Therefore, as sojourners and exiles, we must abstain from the passions of the flesh. We must walk in accordance to God's Word, and we must keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they attempt to speak against us as evildoers, they will see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So from that, I have three simple closing questions that are going to be leapfrogging us into the rest of this letter. First, I want you to consider this morning, who are you and what's your identity? Since that's the main point of Peter's section here. Can you testify this morning that you are a stranger and that you are an exile here on this earth? That though you might struggle with fleshly passions, you're not at peace with them there's a big difference. That you're actually at war. Can you say this morning that God has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of God's beloved Son? If not, I would urge you to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning that you might be saved, forgiven of all of your sins, and made a pilgrim that is destined for God's eternal kingdom. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Who are you? What's your identity? Second, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ, I have a question for you. Another homework. Who's the unbeliever around you that you need to invite closer into your life so that they might see you and hear from you firsthand the power that God could work for them? I hope you have unsaved friends. You should. Who do you need to invite over to your house for supper this week? Who do you need to invite with you to attend church? Who is the lost individual you need to open up more of your life and time to? Third, if you have an unbeliever that you can say, currently I am opening my life up to, who's another Christian that you can introduce that unbeliever to? We don't often think about that, right? Sometimes we think of our unsaved friends. These are sad to say. This is our project, right? We're working on this. No, this is our joint identity and our joint purpose, right? Who is another Christian you can introduce that unbeliever to so that they might see that the power belongs to God and not just one person? Remember, this is where all evangelism begins. It is with our joint identity and with our joint purpose. They shall know that you are my disciples when they see your love for each other. There's a corporate witness. 
We're in this together for the salvation of the lost. We're in this together. One in identity and one in purpose. So who are you? Who's the unbeliever? And who's the believer you need to introduce to them? One in identity and one in purpose. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is our purpose as a people. And this is the word of God from 1 Peter 2, verses 4-12, through 12, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience and the fervent care of one another until that day of visitation appears. To that end, as the men come forward for communion this morning, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for bringing us back by your word to who we are and why we are here. Father, we can even look in our own lives and we can think to ourselves, even as Jesus said, Behold, the fields are white unto harvest. How many, how many people who are still lost in their trespasses and sins could be identified by just the people in this room? What a difference might be made for your kingdom, Father, if just this week we reached out and invited them to take a closer step to us so that they might see the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and hear of it. Give us grace to do that this week, Father. Thank you for reminding us of our purpose as a people. And Father, I pray that you would give us grace to abstain from that which would damage our witness to the unsaved world and that would would detract from the glory of Jesus Christ. Give us grace, Father, this week we pray to walk in obedience in a manner worthy of our calling who have been born again. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.